One of the things about having young children, as I do, is that you discover once again the power of stories and of storytelling. It's amazing how reading a good story really holds their attention and and gets them to sit still when they very, very rarely sit still. And research shows that this doesn't really change with age. We love stories, whether it's it's a good book or whether it's uh, something on TV that kind of hooks us. We love a good story. Well, we might like a good story because really... It's not just the story, is it? It's how it's told. We like a good story when it's told well. Somebody has gone as far as to say that a poorly told story might bore the dinner table, but a well-told story might even start a war or create a nation. A well-told story draws us in. It, It means we can't put the book down. It means we can't wait for the next week, for the next episode. As a comedian who grew up not that far from here used to say, It's the way I tell him. And it was, and part of the way he used to tell him was that he said at the end, it's the way I tell him. It capped off a good story that held our attention. And as we begin today to look at this part of the Bible, we're going to come back to the wineskins a little bit later. We're first going to think about that story about the ruler with the daughter who had died and Jesus on his way to see her and the woman coming to Jesus on the way. But the thing about this story is it's not unique to this part of the Bible. It's not unique to Matthew. Mark and Luke also have it in their Gospels. But there's something about the way Matthew tells this story that is really quite different. There's something, I think, actually quite significant about the way he tells it. You might know the story. You might have heard it preached before. I imagine many of you have. You might have heard it in Sunday school. You might have had it taught when you were young. And if you have, here are some of the things you you might know about the story. This ruler, his name is Jairus, and he's not just any ruler, in fact, but he's a ruler in the synagogue, so he's a religious ruler. And the woman who approaches Jesus, you might know she's tried absolutely everything to be made better. You might know that she's gone to every doctor in town. She's spent every penny that she had to try to get a cure, but she hasn't got one yet. You might know that when she touches the edge of Jesus' coat, Jesus immediately feels the power go out of him, and he stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples say, how can you say that? There's so many people here, so many people have touched you. How can you say, who touched me? And you might know that the woman eventually comes forward trembling, and she admits what she has done. You might have known all those details before you came to church today, and well, if you didn't, I suppose now you do. But the interesting thing about every single one of those details is that Matthew doesn't record them. Not one of them. He doesn't write them down. He doesn't contradict what Mark and Luke says. His account sits well with them, but but he just leaves out all that detail. Why does he do that? I think it's significant that he doesn't. I think after he wrote this part of his gospel, he might have been able to say, it's the way I tell him. I think there's a reason why Matthew tells the story this way. If you've been with us, we've just seen in Matthew's gospel, we saw last week that our greatest need in life is forgiveness. Remember the paralyzed man who came to Jesus? You would think his greatest need was to not be paralyzed, but Jesus identified his greatest need as the forgiveness of his sins. 
And that's why Jesus came into the world at the end last week in in verse 13 of chapter 9. We read that he came to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus came to call sinners to repentance so that they might get forgiveness. And what Matthew is doing, I think, in what we've read today is how this happens. He's going to explain how it happens. How is it that we receive forgiveness of sins? The answer is quite simple, and the answer really is just one word, and the word is faith. Matthew strips back all of the details from this story, not because he was running out of paper or ink or anything like that. You can see he still had plenty of that left, but he wants to focus our attention on the importance of faith in receiving forgiveness from Jesus. So let's look at the characters. Firstly, the ruler, Jairus, we know his name was. I don't think we can imagine what a horrible position he was in. Matthew tells us that his daughter had died. Other gospels say that she was on the point of death and and, and servants came and told him that, that she had died. Matthew just cuts to the chase. She's as good as dead. The girl has died. Jairus comes to Jesus knowing at least that his daughter was going to be dead by the time he got back. She was a dead girl. And I'm not going to pretend, I can't imagine and I can't stand up here and describe to you what he must have been feeling, the turmoil and the pain that he was going through at that moment. I'm new enough here to not know if any of you have been through anything like this. And if you haven't, then like me, you just can't imagine. And probably whatever you do imagine isn't even close to what he was feeling like. And if you have been through it, well, then you know. But look at what he says to Jesus in verse 18. My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. What faith, what confidence he had. Put your hand on her and she will live. In a sense, he comes to Jesus with a request that Jesus would come, but he doesn't sort of say it in the form of a request. He doesn't ask a question. He says it as a statement. If you do this, she will live. I believe this. And we know at the end of the story that this faith is rewarded. What about the woman who was bleeding? All sorts of details we can fill in from the other Gospels, but the only thing that Matthew tells us is that she'd been bleeding for 12 years. Even from this little information, though, there's there's a number of things we can tell. Um, We know of medical conditions today that would cause this sort of thing, and we don't know exactly what the cause was for her. But we can say that she would have been in very poor health indeed. Probably anemic, no medical supplements to, to build up the iron that she was losing. She would have been constantly tired, constantly weak. And that's before you even begin to think about the social consequences for her. Because under the law of Moses, she would have been considered unclean. She just wouldn't have been able to function socially basically at all. She wouldn't have been able to go out among other people because if they came into contact with her, then they would have been unclean too. She wouldn't have been able to worship, and that was so fundamental to your identity as an Israelite. Matthew only tells us that she was bleeding for 12 years, but we know she was ill. She was an outcast. She was desperate. She may well have been homeless. We don't know. But she was certainly at the bottom of the heap. But what about what she says In verse 21, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. No doubt about it. 
I will be healed. And Jesus confirms that it's her faith that is the key. In verse 22, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. She comes to Jesus with faith and she is healed. And what's really interesting about the word that she uses, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. That word healed is is the same word that we would actually normally translate as saved. It could well be translated, if only I touch his cloak, I'll be saved. And Jesus responds with the same word, daughter, your faith has saved you. Not only is this woman healed, we know that the bleeding stopped at that moment, but because of the language Matthew uses, it might just be from that moment she becomes a follower of Jesus. Maybe she's one of the women who goes on to follow him. Maybe she was there watching on at the cross. Maybe she saw him after the resurrection. We don't know, that's speculation, but Matthew certainly leaves that door open for us. This woman's faith heals her, and faith in Jesus saves her. Now, I think at this point you'd be forgiven for asking or wondering about the connection between sin and being saved and sickness and being healed. If you think about it, all the people that we've been thinking about over the last few weeks are sick in some way. And Jesus both heals them and forgives their sins. So is there a connection between these two things? Does it mean that their sickness was caused by some sin? Did they commit some grievous sin and and, and God punished them in some way with sickness? I don't think the Bible um, is unclear about that question. The Bible is very clear and the answer to that question is no. You might think of John chapter 9 when there's a man who's born blind and the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be blind? And Jesus says, no, neither. That's not how it works. But that's not to say that sin and sickness aren't related. Because ever since, and the children have been looking at it, ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, humanity was separated from the living God, the God who gives life. And that's why we get sick. That's why we die, to put it bluntly. It's a result of sin. And so we can say, when something like this happens, when a child dies... That's an evil. That's an evil that is in this world. It's an evil when someone develops a debilitating condition. It's not their fault. It's not because of their sin. But it is because of evil in the world and because of separation from the all-life-giving God. And so when Jesus heals people, he shows us something very important. He meets our greatest need. He forgives sins. But in doing so, he points us to something spectacular. Because when our sins are forgiven, we look forward to life with him in the future. Life without sickness and life without death. Jairus' daughter and this woman whose name we don't even know, after these events we read, they would be sick again. They would go on to die. And you and me, we'll get sick and unless the Lord returns, we'll pass from this earth. But because in Jesus our sins are forgiven, because he's paid for them on the cross, we look forward to life with him And that's a life as life is meant to be, without pain, without suffering, without sickness. Life with Jesus, if we put our faith in him. And that's what he shows in these healings, that he's the authority to do that. He's pointing us towards something greater, something in the future. Faith is the key. Matthew 
makes that very clear. It's not bravery. The, the woman wasn't brave. She, you can imagine her kind of sneaking up behind Jesus and just touching the edge of his coat. It's not about being churchy. The woman wouldn't have been able to attend worship. But faith, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, taking him at his word and reaching out to him to be saved. They could do it physically because Jesus was physically there in front of them. Us, well, it happens in the heart, doesn't it? But we normally say it verbally. We speak, we pray. It's not that there's a certain formula to be saved. If I say A, B, and C, then I'll be saved. Tick, thanks very much. It's something that happens in our hearts, but we normally do put it into words. Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize my greatest need is forgiveness. I believe in Jesus. I believe in who he is. I believe in what he has done. So I put my faith and trust in him to save me. And I'm going to follow him and live for him now. And that offer is open to anyone who will receive it, no matter who you are. These two people were at opposite sides of the spectrum. A religious leader, highly respected. Upper class, we might say. The woman, complete outcast. But both have faith and both receive faith's reward. Now, if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Christ... You might, that might be because you think, well, that's okay, but I couldn't keep it up. You might think, I, I can see it, but I don't think I could live a life of faith. I'm not good enough. If that's you today, then I want to encourage you because I think the next part of Matthew's gospel will tell you otherwise. And if you're here today and you are a believer, you might be discouraged. Maybe you think that your faith is weak. It's not strong like these people who completely trusted Jesus. You might think you're not a very good Christian. Well, if that's you today, then the next part of Matthew's gospel should encourage you too. Because we have these two blind men, and at first glance, again, it looks like they're full of faith, doesn't it? Look again at verse 28. Jesus asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. And he tells them that it will be done according to or because of their faith. So there they are, a great example of faith, aren't they? Well, actually, I don't think so. I don't think their faith was strong at all for, for two reasons. One, you see what they call Jesus in verse 27? Son of David. What's wrong with that, you might say? Jesus is descended from David. It's a good title, isn't it? Maybe. But notice that that's a title that Jesus never calls himself. Because Son of David is something of a political title. D David had been the king of Israel generations before it's a political title. These two men might have thought that Jesus was going to become king and overthrow the Romans who occupied their land. But what do we read in the Gospels? What does Jesus do when he perceives that the people are going to come and make him king by force? He withdraws. It's not what he was there to do. So I don't think these two men really grasp why Jesus has come to earth. Secondly, do you notice what happens after they're healed? We almost skip past it when we read it. Jesus commands them to tell no one. See that no one knows about this, he says. And what do they do? It's like Marty said to the kids, he said, go that way. No, they'll go the other way. They go and tell everyone throughout all the land, it says. They make it known what he has done. These men are actively disobedient to Jesus and what he has just commanded them, even though he's just healed them. 
So while I think the woman and, and Jairus had strong faith, these two, they do have faith. I'm not saying they don't. But it's a weak faith. It's not a faith that is obedient yet. It's not a faith that fully knows who Jesus is. But it's still a faith in Jesus. And so they are healed. I don't know about you, but that's really encouraging for me. Maybe like me, you think, it'd be really good if I knew more about Jesus. It would be really good if my faith was stronger. It would be really good if I lived it out a bit better. If I was a bit more obedient. And yes, that would be good. That would be a great thing. But if we have faith, even if it's weak at times, we still have faith and we have Jesus and we are his. John Calvin described it this way. He said that faith was a result of grace, God's grace to us. And that grace has two parts. Now, he uses fancy words. The first word is justification. But what that means in simple language is that our sins are forgiven. We're declared not guilty before God. That's our greatest need, forgiveness. The second part, and he says it cannot be separated from the first part. It's not a separate thing. It's part of grace, part of our faith. It also has a fancy name. It's sanctification. And what that means in simple language is that our faith will grow. We grow in depth of knowledge of Jesus and we become more like him. It won't be instant. We will mess up. But God will work for us. If he has saved us, then he will sanctify us. And that gives us confidence and and assurance in our faith. It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the gift God has given us and the truth that he teaches us in his word. And we trust that in time, that confidence and assurance will grow as we see him work in our lives. Somebody said something to me recently, which I think is quite helpful. Faith is a living thing. So if you take a picture of it at a certain frozen moment in time, it might not look wonderful. Sometimes when you take the picture, it might be great, but at other times, well, it might be fading. It might be a bit darker. There might be a darker edge on on the photograph. We'll see failure. We'll see disobedience, but we'll always see faith. And over time, like any living thing, it, it will grow until the day when really it isn't faith anymore, but it's actually sight, seeing Jesus, beholding him face to face. Jairus and the woman, they had strong faith. I'm not saying they were perfect, but Matthew paints a very positive picture of their faith. These two men, I want to suggest that their faith wasn't so strong, but they still had faith, and so they were healed. Faith in Jesus Christ saves. But there were some characters in what we read today who did not have faith in Jesus. I wonder, did you spot them? It entertains me greatly that Matthew records the flute players who played outside the grave of of the girl or the the, the room that she was lying in. I'm glad that flute players don't have to do that anymore. Um, It sounds like a pretty bad gig. But when Jesus went there, verse 24, they laughed at him. And then at the end in verse 34, as Jesus casts out a demon out of a mute man, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who should have maybe known better, They don't accept that Jesus has power from God at all. They say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. In effect, they say that Jesus is demon-possessed. We see rejection from these people. We see mockery and laughter. Why do they react that way? Well, I think they they have preconceived ideas and, and simply no openness to God. 
at all. They've no faith. And this brings us back to the very start of what we read today. I've kind of done this in a funny order. But what we read in verses 14 to 17, John's disciples, they come to Jesus and, and they think they have it all wrapped up. We and the disciples of the Pharisees, we fast. That's how you do it. That's how you focus your mind on God. That's how you, you, you undistract yourself from all earthly things and devote yourselves to God. Why don't your disciples do it that way? We know how it's done. You're not doing it right. But they just don't get it. Jesus says, well, my disciples don't need to fast because I'm here. It's not that they need to focus their minds on God because they have God physically with them. And he's not ruling out fasting. If you go back to chapter 6, you'll see Jesus teaches about fasting. But they don't see who Jesus is because they lack faith, and so they don't get it. Jesus then uses two metaphors, the the garment on the bit of clothing and and the wineskins. They both essentially communicate the same truth. We'll go with the wineskins for now. It's maybe not something that we have a lot of practice or experience with, but it's a pretty simple um, metaphor. What you would do is you would put grape juice into wineskins, and and it would ferment, and it would turn into wine, and the wineskins would stretch. But what would happen is if you used old wineskins that had already been stretched and you put new wine in there and it fermented and expanded, well, the wineskins would rip. There would be too much and and the wine would be spilt everywhere and both the wine and the wineskins would be ruined. What's Jesus talking about? Well, all these things that he is doing, simply it doesn't fit their mold. It doesn't fit the preconceived ideas of the Pharisees. They're so hung up on their religious rituals, that's their old wineskins, that they don't even recognize who Jesus is or what he's doing. He he doesn't fit their mold. It's going to ruin the wine if if he goes in there. He is the new wine, but their old wineskins can't handle him. Remember the, the title of our little sermon series? It's Surprised by Jesus. Well, it's almost as if they're too surprised by Jesus that, that they just can't even get it. It's just too far beyond what they would even be expecting. Now, this doesn't mean that the Old Testament's bad or that the things that they were doing is in, are inherently bad. Note how in, in verse 17, Jesus says that if you put the new wine into the new wineskins, both are preserved. He hasn't come to smash one to pieces and and, and put a new one in its place. Both are preserved. And this is something we see through Matthew. I wasn't with you when you went through the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the same kind of thing all over again. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. The old law is still true. It still holds. But failure to get the heart right Failure to have faith, to understand the heart of the law, is to miss the point of what God is actually doing and to miss Jesus. And that's why they come to that conclusion about him right at the end. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They just can't see that he's from God. They have misguided faith. But faith in Jesus leads to being saved. Very simply. Life with him forever. Fulfillment of our greatest need, forgiveness of sins, and becoming children of God. John writes in the first chapter of his gospel that to those who received him, to those who believed, had faith in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor of a human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. What does Jesus say to the woman who touched the edge of his cloak? Daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. She's a child 
of God. In the Old Testament, in the book of Habakkuk, in chapter 2 and verse 4, there's a verse that's quoted, I think, four times as well in the New Testament. It simply says this, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous or the saved ones, God's holy ones, will live by faith. I suppose the question is simple. Do you want to have your sins forgiven? Do you want to be righteous in that sense? Then put your faith in Jesus and and hear him say to you today, son, daughter, your faith has saved you. And if you do have faith, but if you don't feel like it's very strong or it, it wavers or you don't feel good enough, then hear the Savior say to you this morning, son, daughter, your faith has saved you and rest in that confidence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Thank you that he came and showed us how we can have life, life in all its fullness, life with you, forgiveness of sins, life with no sickness or death or tears. Lord, we pray just for ourselves, each one of us, that you would increase our faith. Lord, help us, no matter where we're coming from today, to see Jesus more clearly to put our faith and trust in him wherever we're at in this life. And Lord, may we know that as we do that, that we are saved, that we are healed, that we belong to you, that we're your child, and we share in the love that you have for us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.